I just trying to sound excited about playing 60 Plague Bearers. What a mistake. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Floorhammer podcast, the light take on the grimdark. I am David Pettit, and as always, I'm joined by the man who knows Magnus did nothing wrong. <laughs> it's Rich O'Keefe. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dave. That is a matter of opinion, you know that, right? Well, it's, it's my opinion and I wrote it. So. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll roll with it. As always, you can catch us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Podcast, Instagram at floorhammer underscore podcast, our website floorhammerpodcast.com and as always if you like us leave us a review on itunes or google play so rich what have we got coming up today yeah we're going to start out as always a bit of hobby progress i've been painting like a furious madman so we'll get on to that in a minute yep we swap roles there <laughs> we have yeah it's nice to mix things up we are going to talk about gw releases so mainly focusing on the harlequins yes are you a little bit excited dave i am finally well i say finally Obviously, I haven't been waiting as long as Orcs, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, God, don't go down that road, please. I am super excited that Harlequins are finally coming out. Yep, and we want to just have a, a little touch on the new novels that the Games Workshop said they're going to do as well. Yeah, Warhammer Adventures. Yeah, it sounds cool. And we are going to cover Dave's game versus another friend of ours called Dave. Dave versus Dave. Yes, that's an interesting one. And uh, we're going to get on to talking about Terrain. This has absolutely nothing to do with the GT footage on the internet from last weekend. Genuinely. It's, it genuinely, hasn't. it was something we put straight on the docket after the game that Dave played versus Mike slash Chef that we talked about in episode four. And then we're going to round things off with some hobby tips. I have got my rundown on how I make homemade washes, specifically for using on terrain, because you do not have enough... Well, you might have enough money to put null oil on terrain, but I certainly don't, so... Uh, I found a way of doing it on the just cheap. Start up a Patreon uh, just for those people who <laughs> do have enough. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, shall we get on to the hobby progress then? I think I'll go first because for once you've done more than me. I have. I yes. had a pretty slow week this week actually. I got that order I spoke to uh, spoke about last time from Forge World. Oh, your uh, small order that spiraled out of control. Everything goes out of control when it's Forge World. Yeah, it so does, I'm, doesn't I'm it? Just out of control. <laughs> It was a special offer, Rich. It was a special offer. Did you manage to get it, uh, get it delivered when your wife wasn't here? Uh, I did. I Good did. Man. Thank Pro you tips. For, thank <laughs> you for not speaking too loud, because she's just in the other room. <laughs> she doesn't listen to us. The uh, Terminators, the Praetor, and the Siren Dreadnought turned up, and I was super excited about it. It was like a little Christmas. It was like a little Christmas. So they turned up, I think, the day before Warhammer Fest, actually. Oh. Being last Friday, or whatever it was. And, uh, yeah, so I quickly went about building them when we got back from Warhammer Fest. Not straight away, because I was shattered that day. But I built them. I've sprayed them all. That's the Terminators and the Praetor are sprayed. And if anyone's seen our Instagram, you'll see the progress on the assigned Dreadnought, because I couldn't really resist going for the biggest model first. It is pretty awesome. It was the model that inspired your massive splurge in the first place. Exactly, exactly. So I base coated it with, a, with an airbrush. So I've gone up with the blues, gave it a null oil wash and um, highlighted it with Fenrisian Grey after, I think, bringing it back up with Araman Blue, aptly named. So it looked a bit Alpha Legion-y, which... Uh, yeah, it did. It did 
when it was just the blue. Yeah, because it was blue and, and with the grey base coat primer. It looked like Alpha Legion. Yeah, I, I added a bit of gold to it and it's coming back up to uh, Thousand Suns. Yeah, with the gold alongside the blue, it looks a lot... I mean, just the two colours being alongside each other changes how the blue looks because that's how colours work, I suppose. But, I mean, I held it up alongside one of your marines just now and the colours look exactly... Well, actually, saying that, through the airbrush, I did actually put the base coats in Thousand Suns Blue. Again, okay, so you followed then. exactly the same colour recipe then? Yes, yeah, I just I thinned it down with a bit of airbrush thinner and put it through the airbrush. And uh, yeah, it came out it came out very well. So yeah, it's looking good. Just need to uh, highlight up the gold and do more bits and a few more details and then some more details. And yep. Hopefully. That's the Forge World way though, isn't it? Yeah. It's great. It's loads of details. So cool. But it does take an age to paint sometimes. And you were waving around that orange just now before we started recording the for the plasma. Yes, so I've I've given it a, so it's going to be a hellbrute, and I've given it the plasma cannon. I say it's going to be a hellbrute. I'm sort of on a toss up between making it hellbrute and a uh, hellforged dreadnought. Okay. Yeah, so I was going to do the plasma in the army uh, orange. So I've got the blue and gold as the sort of the base colours for the thousand suns with the white off colour as they have all their tabards, I suppose. I have green as magic. And yep. then I needed a, another colour for the plasma because I didn't want to do it blue, obviously it would clash with the armour. I didn't want to do it green because uh, obviously that's magic and I wanted to keep it separate. So I went for a, went for a nice orange, which I had because I was going to do that as a spot of colour for my death core, I think it was. Yeah, I think it's going to look really cool. Really, really make it stand out because it's going to be one or two models that have it across the army and it'll make them really pop. So. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to uh, sort of use the, was it the OSL yeah. lighting, was it? You're going to spray it with an airbrush or are you going to do it by... Oh, airbrush definitely. With, yeah, then with that, that sort of stuff. A yeah. little bit of overspray on the airbrush will make it look like the uh, OSL, and it will look really cool. Yeah, orange mixing a bit of white, and then white in the centre, and it should hopefully come out really well. Obviously, I'll stick up in progress shots on Instagram as well as the finished gold. But I just need to highlight it first before sticking it up on there. Yeah, that's literally all I did these last two weeks. Oh, hang about! I bought a light box. So our friend as did I. Dave, who you'll hear later in the battle report, um, bought a light box off Amazon for only £10 and was really, really happy with the result. Yeah, he's putting pictures up on his Instagram, which is at the underscore celestial underscore anvil for Age of Sigmar, and his pictures are looking really good. Yep, really crisp. He uses the, the white background. Um, yep. His colour schemes are quite bright anyway, so they uh, lend themselves very well. Mine actually turned up today. So I put it together, um, got a few of my Templar models, and interestingly, yeah. with the white, doesn't look um, as crisp as I thought, but as soon as I put them on a black background, it really makes them pop yeah. because they're dark anyway. And my painting style is quite dark. I mean, I used to wash gold with null oil for the Templars just to get them gritty yeah. uh, more than sort of light and warm. So... I think the black background for the light box will lend itself very well to my models. And I showed you a couple of pictures. Yeah, come out great. Come out really well. So, you also bought one of these. I did buy one. So, I'll, uh, I'll be doing some trial trial photos when I finish painting my 60 Plague Bearers. I'm not going to refer to all of them. That'll take me... Oh, God, no. Speaking of which... So, yeah, 60 Plague Bearers. So, when it all started with the uh, Nurgle, I started with 20 Plague Bearers. And then the rules, you know, they get benefits if they're over 20, so you want more than 20, so I went to 30, and I was like, well, I want a battalion for the command points, so that means I've got to do 60, because the rest of the troops have been nurglings. Yeah, that was a mistake. I mean, I am almost done, so I'd done the flesh on 20, and then I've 
batch painted the other 40 to catch up and then I've batch painted all of the innards and other detailing on the 60 models and I've got I've got a few more that need their swords doing metals then I do the rust effect the rust effect on them looks really good quite a few quite a few of our friends have commented on that yeah once I get the recipe set I'll probably just share that because it's come out quite well. So it looks quite gritty from the pictures, is it? Gritty? Yeah, I put. Oh, oh, I'll get into it because I put a couple of different additives to get different grits. So when I find one oh, what wow. I like, I'll, uh, I'll I'll go on about it a bit more. But they, I just need. That's all that's needed to do is put those on the swords, and then sixty are done, which would be great. Not for me, but for you. <laughs> no, it'd be great for me. I also started on the great unclean one, which is the the Glockin model, because sixty plague bearers was causing me to be slightly depressed. Shout out to uh, Tabletop Tactics videos on YouTube and um, Bill Morlock on YouTube because uh, watching some battle reports to get me through the slog of painting that many models. So I, I broke that up with the Great Unclean one and doing the skin, well, trialing the rust and doing the skin textures for, for that because it's a lot of skin and if you paint it all green, it's going to be really boring. Mm. So just trying to shade certain areas for different effects and then work on like the pustules and things. So yeah, a bit of experimenting. <laughs> yeah, all the all the good stuff. Um, just a bit of experimenting to um, break up the tedium and na- trying to nail down the basing as well because I want to do them all, base them all in one go. Yeah, I so th- I haven't actually seen any basing yet, have I? Uh, no, I'm going to go for a swamp themed base. So mm. I'm just working out how to do the wet looking mud and then put some water effects on top and then leave it at that. Okay. So you, oh yeah, you bought the tufts, didn't you? Bought the tufts. It's just the other bits to, to work out how to make the soil look wet without it looking without it being wet. So he's got you know not run off the base. And then I also have drawn up some plans for my gaming table as well in, the, in a bit of spare time to, again, just break up doing that many Plague Bearers. That was a... not doing that again. How's that looking, the gaming table? Yeah, good. I'm going to start working on it over the weekend, so... Oh! I'll uh, put some progress shots up if it goes according to plan. Very nice, very nice. Right, shall we get on to talk about the GW releases? Because I know that if you don't talk about Harlequins in the next 10 minutes, you might pop. Yes, right, let's go! Right, so Dave, Harlequins, you are a little bit excited. I am very excited, because I had Harlequins for 7th edition. Before they were cool? (laughs) Uh, I I mean, I had never had Harlequins before, because they're part of Eldar, and I hate Eldar, until the Harlequins came out, because they looked really cool, and I, I decided to give myself a painting challenge because i think i just you must have just finished the templars right no maybe i it was it was some monotonous project oh it was 30k salamanders and i was losing a bit of faith it was like your third power armor army army in a row yes yes so i did the normal salamanders and then the whole of the templars all in one go went back to the old salamanders and then 30k salamanders and yeah i just needed to break up the power armor like you said so i started harlequins because i was actually leaning towards dark elder at the time um and then that's a dangerous leaning yeah killer clowns came out so i went straight for it and i loved their trolling i guess the (laughs) the the ability to um, make people manipulate their own dice rolls, fail leadership tests. I remember the leadership force. manipulation in that army I, was I, severe. I loved it, loved it. Sort of getting minus three leadership on people and then shooting them with the shuriken cannon to make them fail morale tests and making people run off the edge of buildings and off the map. And Oh, it was great fun, <laughs> great fun. Yeah, it sounds like your opponents must have had a whale of a time. Well... <laughs> Well, they they did when they shot back because uh, oh, they made a tinfoil. Yeah, so. they are made of tinfoil, and they have actually got a lot better with the index going from a five up in bun to a four up in bun, yep. and price changes and all sorts. Well, I say price changes; they actually went up because my old army 
went from 1750 to 2300. That wow. did include a race night. Which leapt in points and needed, well, yes, yeah, needed to. it needed to. So, yeah, so now the, the new codex is coming out and the introduction of the masks through the Warhammer community page, some of them look right up my street. I mean, so this is your chapter tactics slash regiment slash yes. forge world uh, ability across your army. The Harlequins are sorted into masks, which are essentially their sort of theatrical groups. And some of the mask rules that have popped up on the Warhammer community page are really jumping out of the page to me. I've actually got two of them in front of me. It's the Veiled Path. So this one really took my fancy because it's all about, if I'm, if I'm going to be uh, honest, it's about pissing off your opponent. <laughs> so uh, it's the Veiled Path. So the actual um, symbol for the Veiled Path is sort of like an upside down question mark. It's hard to describe on an audio media. And the uh, mask rule is called Riddlesmiths. So at the start of each fight phase, roll two dice and discard the highest results. Until the end of the phase, each time your opponent targets a unit with this form and makes a hit roll that, before modifiers, exactly matches your dice result, that hit roll fails. Now that's already a rule for some Zench things, I think, Zinch. in, in the, the Zench demons in the Demons Codex, but having that across your whole army to keep you safe sounds like a lot more durability. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, excuse the pun, hit and miss. Because you've got dice rolls. Um, yes, so you I mean, you pick the lowest, right, isn't yes, it? Yes, so you ha you've got two dice rolls and you have to pick the lowest. So off the bat, it's probably going to be a three or less. And a lot of things only hit on threes with their weapons. Yeah, it's true. It's going to stop your characters, it's going to stop people's characters slaughtering your units when hitting on two. So that's quite nice. It's very situational. Yeah. But uh, you could have a lot of fun. A yep. lot of fun with that mask rule. Uh, and I'm sure if if that is their mask rule, I'm sure there are lots of traits and stratagems to do with the Veiled Path mask. That's, That's a real tongue twister, <laughs> isn't it? That is a tongue twister. So it's 17th take, people, don't worry. <laughs> the Veiled Path mask. There we go. Lost my train of thought now. Uh, yeah, so they look like they are the tricksters. Yep. And I'd be interested... Of the trickster to, army. Of the trickster army. Ooh. Uh, so I'll be very interested to see what their warlord traits, their stratagems, etc. Yes. look like. I would be quite tempted to take them as that. Because you painted yours in a, I suppose, generic scheme. Not that Harlequins have that much of a generic scheme, but you didn't pick, a, you didn't design them around an existing no, no, no. So um, I, color scheme. I, I looked at the colour schemes in the book and I quite liked, uh, I think it was the cover boys, they were sort of light blue and purple. I've forgotten the name of their mask, I think it's the Midnight Sorrow. But uh, I liked the look of it, but I didn't like the light blue and purple, so I actually went with yellow and purple, which, as we've seen in 8th edition, is great because you get to pick and choose your mask yes. or chapter tactics, etc, etc. So it does give you, it does open up a lot of different options for you. It's a different play style as well. Like you can try out different things and you're not forced into one channel. Yeah, so the other mask rule, or the other mask form, I should say, that I picked out was the Soaring Spite. So this looks very powerful from a, a Harlequin army with more teeth. So the Soaring Spite, from the reveals that we've seen, they very much look like the fast, hard-hitting, focus-on-transport 
mask, as you will. They're very much geared towards using the transports to zoom forward as fast as possible, get out and smash the enemy in the face. Yeah, and it's, they've, got, they've got a lot of shooting buffs as well, because the, the rule is that the models with the form with the fly keyword or embarked on a transport with fly treat all their pistol weapons as assault one during a turn in which they or the transport advances, which is great because they can still fire their weapons. Yeah. And in addition, they ignore the penalty for advancing and shooting an assault weapon. So that's really good, because it, it, that helps the actual vehicle itself, because basically all of your guns now have become assault weapons. Assault weapons with no modifier when you advance. Powerful. Yes, that's very powerful, because the actual rule with the Star Weavers is that they always move six inches when they advance. Yes, that's good. So you've already you're already moving, what, 24 inches... Yep. And then the ability to shoot all of your guns and the guys on board to shoot all of their pistols. If you've got fusion pistols in there, you're yep. going to wreck stuff. And you've still got the rising crescendo ability that lets you assault after you've advanced as well. So it gives you ultimate flexibility. Yeah, I mean, hope- hopefully that is in the codex. I'm sure it, I'm sure it will I'm be. I'm sure it will be, yeah. That, that was their index Harlequin's special rule. With this, it's going to be really powerful. Because your army is essentially based on infantry in transports and or vehicles or or jet bikes that have the fly keyword so at the start of your ga- uh, start of the game this mask rule would affect your uh, a benefit for your whole army so i think this would lend itself if you wanted to play a more competitive game or yes. you found yourself in that situation this this mask will really be on your side yeah I, like like you said my old army everyone was in transports partly because they were very flimsy and yep. if anything looked at them they might die but Yes, I have no boots on the ground, apart from a couple of death jesters, but that's just a side note. So this looks very good from a yeah from, from a list with more teeth. The Warlord trait for the Soaring Spy, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head, is that the Warlord can move out of a transport after the transport has moved Yes, as well. So if you've flown forward, you have sort of flat-out movement and then advanced, and then your warlord can get out, and then he can also advance, and then charge, you're pretty much guaranteed a first-turn charge. He's got the reach of almost heart, most of the table, to be yeah. honest. As long as you're playing sort of a standard dawn of war, yeah. 12 inches on deployment, I'm not going to say guaranteed, but you're highly likely to get first-turn charge. And you can move over vehicles and units and terrain, etc., because of your flip belts. Yep. So you're... Yep, you just move through, move through terrain. That guy can just be a bullet to tie up anything that you really don't want nailing your guys in the first turn. Yeah, I mean, the only thing he has to watch out for is Overwatch, and if he fails to charge, he's out in the open on his own, which might be a bit of an issue, slash is a bit of an issue. But, yeah, if he makes that charge and gets in, uh, I mean, he's got five wounds... So he's got half a chance. Yeah, he's got he's got a good chance of getting in. And if if anyone's gone up against a uh, troop master, they are bastard hard in combat. Yes, they've got access to all of the cool Harlequin's weaponry in in combat, which gives them quite a punch, if I remember rightly. Yes, yes, yes. One of the stratagems that's also been leaked uh, to do with troop masters is pretty cool. So back in seventh edition, the Harlequins did not have an HQ. And a lot of people called for this great Harlequin model or at least the ability to take an HQ so that they could take the standard deployment options rather than having to use a formation. Yeah. So they, they wanted a great Harlequin as, a, as an HQ choice. Well, they didn't get that in 7th edition. However, in 8th edition with this new codex, there is actually a stratagem 
to play to make one of your troop masters. It might have to be the warlord, but if you're going to make him a great harlequin, it's going to be the warlord anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so you pay two command points before the start of the battle, and your troop master becomes the great harlequin. And what this does essentially is turn him into a space marine, ca- or give him the ability of a space marine captain. Yeah, we call it the captain ability, but it's the the reroll ones to hit, right? Exactly. Yeah, he doesn't become toughness four. And <laughs> no, <laughs> gets a three up armor save. Yeah, so essentially he gets the ability to reroll ones in the fight phase, uh, reroll ones to hit in the fight phase. Which combine that with his ability that he's got already, or he did have in the index, hopefully it carries forward, of re-rolling wounds in the fight phase, it makes him incredibly good. Yeah, it's interesting that it's in the fight phase as well, so it is a little bit more restricted than the, quote, captain ability of just re-roll ones, but it's where you really want to be with him anyway, because he's otherwise got a pistol. Yep, and it's it's two command points. Those two command points that you've just got from yep. Battalion going from three to five. Uh, so it seems to be very good. And then if you obviously combine that with the Soaring Spite Warlord trait of being able to get out of a vehicle after it's moved, etc., etc., that can be very, very good. What I think this codex is going to give you by the spoilers we've seen so far is that you're going to have a lot of options to play the game a different way so your harlequin because harlequins you don't have a lot of unit entries you don't have a lot of available choices in the army building phase but in the choice of what mask you want to use what warlord you want to use powers you want to use what relics you want to take to again manipulate that because there's a there's one of the ones i really love is there's a relic that your death jester can take to make his shrieker cannon even better yes yes so it goes from one damage to d3 damage yeah so there's there's cool things like that that you can use to spice up the army list so you're not just stuck playing with the same force over and over again through lack of choice your choices are now in the other things that go with your army well that's that's what i'm most excited about the codex is the fact that i can just take my standard army and play it in three or four or five different play styles using the exact same units just different stratagems, different traits, different warlord traits, different mask rules. And it just gives the ability that turns a relatively small army. I mean, you saw it with Death Watch as well. Yeah. A relatively restricted army. And it gives them loads of different play styles to make it not as monotonous as it could be. Yeah. You don't play the same game over and over again because you can, you can mix it up with uh, your extra rules, whereas other armies can mix it up with other units. Exactly, exactly. So you don't have the the Space Marine ability of 16 different vehicles to do different functions. I mean, the Harlequins have not anywhere near 16 uh, unit entries in the whole codex. So, yeah, it's brilliant, and that's exactly what I'm looking forward to. So the other thing we wanted to talk about with regards to releases that, that they've talked about is these new series of books that are aimed at children's they are called warhammer adventures yes and they're aimed at children who are eight to twelve now there's a lot of complaining on the internet because it's the internet and people what love a to surprise i oh, know shocking if you don't like the idea don't buy the book yep for those people who do want to buy the books to give them to their their kids or their nephews and nieces that are interested in the hobby it's aimed eight to twelve year olds so my expectation is that they're going to tone the violence down because like 40k novels aren't that violent on face value but sometimes you read them and there's things like the chainsaw got clogged up with the gristle of his face and stuff like that and you're like 
Like, that's okay for a 12, 13 year old, because they probably talk about that and they're playing Call of Duty and shooting each other's heads off anyway. But an eight year old is like, mm, that's not. Ripping ri- guts out and painting their armour with the blood. Yes, that's not what parents want to be buying for their children, even if the kids do end up looking at that stuff anyway. So I think it's just going to open the doors to more kids getting interested in the hobby and, most importantly, the background part of the hobby, not just. Oh, these are cool, mo- cool models. Let's shoot each other's armies to pieces. They're going to get an interest for the flavour, and you know they'll build up into the uh, genocidal lunatics that the Imperium is at a later date, and not not set that on a twelve-year-old. Got a question for you? Yeah. Do you reckon they'll let Aaron Dembski Bowden write for them? <laughs> um, maybe I don't, not. Don't think so. <laughs> maybe not. But no, I, I think it's a great idea. And look, they're not going to turn all novels into kids' novels, and if you don't like them, don't buy them. They're still going to be along the same theme and the same universe. It's just going to be dialed back on, I think, the violence, the plot complexity, and, you know, language that's aimed at an 8 to 12 year old to be able to read it on their own. And the complicated names as well. Planets. Yeah, exactly. Commanders that. It would just even, be toned even I down. Lose, I lose yeah. track of them. So, well, you mentioned a good point off air actually earlier about what if this gets onto reading lists? If they're, yeah. if they're really good novels and. and teachers start to read them and really like them they might be included into sort of all sorts s- school reading yeah. lists i mean that could be a pop i mean horace rising right was a times new york times new york times bestseller mm. if the if 40k can if games watch can achieve the same with their kids novels in the kids equivalent that's opening the hobby up to loads of people it's a good business decision from their point and you know, it's just nice for, for parents to be able to buy their kids a book that is 40k themed, if that's what they're interested in, because their parents like it, without worrying about, you know, them having nightmares. Because, you know, at eight years old and eight to ten, I guess, it, it, you're pushing it with the violence, I think. So, yeah, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I, I, I'm i all for it. I think it's great. It's not going to take away anything from uh, our current range. So what what's not to like about it at all? Yep, so four more years for me and I can start reading my little boy uh, bedtime stories about, you know, people shooting orcs in the face with las guns, just, you know, a bit toned down. Yep, and four more years for me so I can start reading them as well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, stock jokes. Okay, so do you want to get on to talking about your game of the Dave versus Dave match? Yep, Dave on Dave. Right, yeah, so what army were your Templars facing down this episode, Dave? I was facing Necrons this week, Ooh. so Dave versus Necrons. Yeah, so our friend Dave is mainly an AOS player. Yeah, so he does love his AOS. Yes, he does, but he has a Necron army. Yep. So he hasn't actually played under the new Codex yet, so a couple of weeks ago he bought the new Codex under nice. our, our uh, constant peer pressure. Nice, yep. So with the Codex, he wrote up a list. Yeah, I challenged him to, uh, challenged him to a battle. In order to get his points up, he bought the Nightbringer and painted it up as well. So Ooh, that, that model is cool. It is wicked. I love that model. And Dave has a bit of background. He has a grey um, Necron army with uh, an offset blue. It is which, nice, yeah. Which I believe is a colour scheme in the book without a dynasty rule. I can't okay, remember. Cool. Someone will probably uh, write in and say. But uh, he has this really cool looking sort of grey and blue army and painted the Nightbringer up with sort of a blue light coming out of his mouth and um, nice. other, those cre- are, those other crevices. Are, ooh, uh, those are good colours to suit him, actually, because he's quite a grim and moody-looking model anyway. Yeah, so 
nice. Yeah, the Nightbringer, it does lend itself to those colours. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so it looked awesome and uh, it actually featured very heavily in our game. So we rolled up Spoils of War, which is the the mission from uh, the Maelstrom of War. Okay. Uh, where you can steal each other's um, objective number. Oh, secure objective or defend objective. Exactly, yeah. So if you've got yeah. a secure objective X, your opponent in their turn can capture Ooh. can capture that and they steal that card off of you. Because Maelstrom's got a bit of variance to it anyway, but that's going to make it really swingy with objectives being grabbed left, right and centre. Yeah, so this, this is a throwback from uh, 7th edition. Yeah. So I played it quite a lot in 7th edition. I'm it was great. Yeah, we, we, we loved it back in 7th edition. So obviously it's, it's back in 8th edition and uh, yeah, we rolled this one. So we were well up to that. And we rolled it off uh, for deployment and just ended up with a sort of standard... Dawn of War deployment. That's quite good when you're... Dave's getting back into to playing 40k and using the Necrons for the first time. It's quite good to have a straightforward straightforward deployment, actually. Yeah, exactly. So, Dave's army, like I said, doesn't have dynasty rules. Um, so, he actually used the Mephrit dynasty rules, which okay. turns out is quite nasty. So, it's the one that gives all their guns minus one AP at half range. So, when you combine that with Dave's Gorse army, uh, which already has a natural minus one or minus more. Yeah, that's uh, quite painful. Yeah, when you start when you start adding up, or I suppose subtracting, <laughs> um, to make them sort of minus two, minus three, minus four, it yeah. gets horrendous, especially when you're a marine army and you rely on those armor saves. Yeah, I mean, they're already... Necrons are a punchy army at that sort of mid-range shooting anyway, so making them more potent at what they do best is uh, quite a powerful combo. I can see in the notes you put was it too many eggs in one basket? It was not because it comboed really well. It would have been if I was, say, the Harlequins with their invun saves across the board. Yeah. But when you're, like I said, relying on your armor saves, having the extra minus one is horrendous. <laughs> and being a close combat army as well, my general tactic is to run forward, yeah. getting into that half range. and You're putting yourself there. Exactly, the... exactly. Yeah. So... There we go. All my excuses out of the way. <laughs> yep. You can guess how this game went, folks. It, it, it was it was close, actually. So Dave deployed first, uh, set up first, and won the roll-off for first turn, but he deferred to me. Yeah, so he won the roll-off to choose who goes first, yes. but obviously most people pick to go first. But yeah, canny choice by Dave, I think. Yeah, well, so his optimum range is obviously half distance. Yeah. And if I am to close up the gap between us in the first turn, when it comes to his first turn of shooting... He steps forward and you're in optimum range. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I uh, went first and I shot everything at his lich guards because I know how nasty they can be. They are unpleasant. Yeah, so they're not the ones with the uh, the, the scythe and shield. They're the ones with the sort of the two-handed The blades. war sides, exactly. they are, yeah. And I know how horrible they are, especially me, being a close combat army. Yes. Uh, did not want to face them in close combat. So I literally shot everything in my army at them, um, within reason, and left them with one left. Frustrating against Necrons, isn't it? It's very frustrating, because I just did not have enough... I, did, I just didn't have anything left. Because if you take out the whole unit, they don't get their reanimation. Yeah, yeah. Right. So once once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. Um, Necrons in this edition have reanimation protocols throughout the game. So you've really um, got to concentrate on wiping units out. Exactly. It's not. It's not 
do they come back this turn? It's do they come back throughout the game? So yeah. leaving them on one was uh, disappointing. <laughs> so yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't the greatest. Um, that I mean that included the Land Raider Crusader and the Scout Snipers trying yeah. to shoot them. So yeah, so Dave had his first turn, started to walk forwards, and his Nightbringer came forward and looked at stuff, which. When the Nightbringer looks at stuff, it dies. Does it? Yep, so <laughs> it's it's the gaze of death just wiped out my bike. So it does D3 wounds um, each time. Well, it's, it's basically a flamer doing D3 wounds. D3 mortal wounds? Well, D3 wounds at minus... Oh, minus lows. Okay, save. right, yeah. okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, I had bikes with two wounds each. Doesn't matter when Dave rolls as well he do- as he does with his uh, D3. Well, is it damaged? Two or damage D three as well. Damage so. D three. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it is. It's just killing them off. I couldn't do anything to stop. Uh, yes. How was the shooting though? The shooting was uh, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. It's um, he shot a load of stuff with the extra minus one. I didn't have very good saves. Yeah. Um, Five up isn't great for Marines. No. 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 So he. Shot a, shot a load of stuff in my army. I don't think a lot of stuff went down. I can't quite remember, but I don't think a lot of stuff went down. But a lot of vehicles lost hit points. Um, I do remember my storm talon went down to pretty much the lowest setting straight away. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I'm only hit on fives, and That's we've got two painful, las cannons. Yeah. And I mean, the assault cannon is really good, which we'll get to in turn two because. <laughs> I, well, let's go for it then. I flew forward with this uh, Storm Talon and just rinsed his warriors. Because even if you're hitting on fives, it has... So that has the twin assault cannons. So it's got 12 shots. 12. As does your... Your land rate has the same as yep. well, right? Yep. So 12 shots. Uh, you're going to yes, get hits. Yes, they're hitting on fives. But it, it, it's strength six, um, AP minus one. Um, and when you're shooting the, the warriors there, it's really good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I managed to kill loads of uh, warriors and killed the last Lich Guard as well. So, the Land Raider Crusader, I didn't take a gamble and shot the majority of the weapons at the Lich Guard because I just wanted to kill that one guy. Yeah. It was, it was a bit of a waste of ammo. The assault cannons could have been used against something else, but I needed to kill the Lich Guard before they all came back. Yeah, so that's quite good tech against Necrons then, the old assault cannons. Yeah, and i tell you what's really good against Cryptex as well, a uh, Dreadnought Power Fist. <laughs> yeah, good old Dreadnoughts. They're, uh, they shoot, they punch, gotta love them. Yeah, so I have a Contemptor, um, going with the theme of, <laughs> theme of the <laughs> yeah, that guy's combat, nasty. close combat fast army. Uh, yeah, running forward nine with a Dreadnought is scary. So yeah, he uh, I killed off the last of the Warriors which meant that the Cryptek was exposed and the Dreadnought punched him in the face. Good work. Yes, so I know when facing Necrons to kill the Cryptex to give a four-up reanimation protocols and an invun uh, in a bubble is ridiculously good. Mm. Uh, one of Dave's sort of takeaways we'll get to at the end was that Necrons are heavily reliable, uh, reliant on having a sort of a castle formation with bubbles of buffs. Yeah. They start to fall apart if they lose those bubbles. And I know from facing Necrons that killing those buffs, mainly Cryptex, uh, is the key to, to killing Necrons. But Dave's turn two was 
horrendous. Because so you're in like prime range for him now, right? Yeah. So with with my with my turn two, I'd managed to run forward. I got the um, Empress Champion and Helbrecht and uh, a squad of five Marines into combat. So the Marines and Helbrecht charged in against the Immortals. Yep. The Empress Champion charged the Nightbringer. Oh, so, bold move. Yeah, against a flamer weapon doing D3 damage, managed to get in. I was I was quite lucky with that. I mean, the, the Empress Champion has four up in one save, so I was quite confident. And Dave, for once, didn't roll too well on the uh, D6 hits. So, yeah, so they, they, uh, they jumped in, and I attacked with Helbrecht first because against those Immortals, there are a lot of Immortals there, and... Going against Helbrecht, I knew he was going to direct all of his attacks at Helbrecht. Yep. So I needed to go first with Helbrecht. Plus he's going to carve his way through a bunch of immortals with that sword anyway, as we previously discussed. So. Yes, yeah, so I, I just tried to limit the amount of attacks yep. coming back at me against Helbrecht. However, Dave, being the canny tactician that he is interrupted my fight phase so this was a lapse of judgment on my behalf that stratagem is you've always got to be thinking about it yep yep so he had uh, i think three command points left didn't think about it he interrupted combat with the nightbringer against the emperor's champion and wiped him off the face of the universe yep yeah i think he did about seven wounds to him and just yeah just wiped him from reality yeah so yeah, my Empress Champion didn't even get to attack the Nightbringer, so I then realised that this Nightbringer might run through my army after he just instantly killed the bikes, insta-killed the Emperor's Champion, and was bearing down on Hellbreak. I yeah, that's a... was scared. Yeah, that's going to be pa- that's going to be a painful fight because, as good as Hellbreak is, he's got to not get murderised by the Catan. So yes. Talking of getting murderized, Helbrecht finished finished off a, a few immortals, and the um, immortals attacked Helbrecht back. So I've noticed in Eighth Edition, the key to surviving is to make your armor saves. That, that is how Forty K works, Dave. I didn't yeah. know if you uh, had read the rulebook or not. Yeah, well, apparently, apparently that's how you keep your characters alive. Because <laughs> uh, could I make an armor save with Helbrecht? Could I? F- <laughs> Yeah, he's he's been a mixed bag for you with with the, with the luck of the armor saves. I had I had what five armor saves to make and I rolled three ones. So yeah, I just lost three wins right off the bat on Hellbreak. He is definitely not going to survive toe to toe with the Nightbringer in that case. Though. No, no. So I was worried. Mm. Then the command barge with Dave's Necron Lord jumped into the fray in that middle bit as well. So the command barge comes in, and luckily for me, the Nightbringer moves off. Oh, he's got other things in mind. Yeah, so I was certain that the Nightbringer was going to come off the Hellbrecht, and instead the Lord on the command barge charged in. I mean, I think that thing's pretty tough. It is, yeah. So Dave thought, well, Hellbrecht's only got two wins left, I'll finish him off with that. That's fair. And uh, yeah, and the Nightbringer went off to uh, go kill some scouts. In Dave's turn as well, he moved forward his Treyarch Stalker. Treyarch Stalker? I think that's about right. Pretty much. Uh, moved it forward to uh, go toe-to-toe with the scouts. So the scouts had moved forward to capture an objective in my turn, uh, which I needed for points. Points. And, uh, yeah, came through. So the scouts had their camo cloaks on, so I thought oh, they'd be safe in that. Dave 
played a Necron stratagem which removes cover. Oh! Yeah, it removes the save or the but bonus it... saves <laughs> for cover. So <laughs> they just blow scouts. their cloaks away. <laughs> so these scouts are in the middle of this crater trying to capture an objective. Yeah, and then suddenly their cloaks get blown away. Um, they were probably released a few few bodily fluids when they saw this Treyarch stalker coming over to them. Yeah, he removed their cover and shot the crap out of them. I bet. It was quite cool to witness, actually, just seeing these scouts in their camo cloaks getting ripped apart by a heavy gorse cannon or whatever the Troic Stalker has. Dave also shot a few things. I think he killed off the Storm Talon as well Um, and did quite a few wounds to my Predator. In fact, I think he took the Predator down to its last... Its lowest profile, yeah. yeah. its last profile. So it was essentially null and void, especially when you can't hit with a Laz Cannon to save your life anyway. So that came up to my turn three. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to survive against the command barge with Helbrecht because he managed to make a few armor saves. Hey. So in my turn, fight phase, Helbrecht squared off against this command barge. So the command barge is pretty high toughness. Yep. It's got nine wounds as well. Helbrecht turns around and insta-kills nice. this command barge. So... Hellbreak's weapon, if you're not familiar, uh, gives him plus one strength to make him strength five, and he has a bubble of uh, Black Templars within six inches or so, uh, get plus one strength. So essentially this sword is strength six uh, and does D3 damage at minus three. So this sword is really, really good, and turns out that when you roll five, five, six on uh, D3 wounds against a nine wound model, it kills it. <laughs> yeah, who knew? Yeah, so that that was my moment what of boss. glory. My moment of glory, Halbrecht. He's 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 given you moments of glory in every single game you've used him. Yep, yep. Well, he never got into combat in seventh. Um, no, yeah. Yep, and then I just used. I mean, I say he never got into combat in, in seventh. I used um, Chaplain Grimaldus. Yeah, he did. Yeah, much a lot more than Halbrecht. Um, no, I think uh, I think he's done you proud in every single game. So he's just got to be an auto include, really. Yeah, I mean, on top of his chapter master rules as well. Anyway. Yeah. He's just- He's, a beast. Uh, he's really good. Mm. Unfortunately, Dave brought this command pod back with a stratagem. So it was a moment of glory, short-lived. <laughs> you were just totally robbed by a stratagem. I was totally robbed. I did get the uh, Slay the Warlord, so you do get... Oh, you do, it does, cont- yeah. it does count. Okay, yeah. good. So it counts as killing the Warlord. Can you, can you get it twice? No, no. Okay. Well, I don't think so. Uh, spoiler alert, I didn't kill it twice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it comes back and Hellbrecht's, Hellbrecht's moment of glory after killing this command barge. In epic fashion. In epic fashion. What a moment of glory. It uh, reassembles itself and then he gets beaten to death by immortals. <laughs> so yet again, I can't save uh, two up armor saves. And, oh, uh, Yeah, these immortals punched him to death. Nice. Which... It, yeah, he's I there fist pumping because he's just killed this uh, Necron Lord, and they're yeah, just like they just mug him from behind. He's doing one of those uh, Fortnite dances <laughs> as he gets beaten to death. So uh, yeah, the, at least it's funny. Pretty much summed up my game actually. <laughs> uh, a moment of glory, uh, robbed by <laughs> Necrons, <laughs> robbed by death. Nice. Also in that turn, Dave's death marks. Turn so up. in his turn, they they deep strike right. Yes, they do. So they have a uh, special rule which essentially is deep strike. I think it's called uh, Assassins from the oh, Multiverse or something. It's, it's really cool. I should have looked this up before. But yeah, they, they essentially deep strike within nine. 
Um, and then they're all snipers. So essentially, sixes to wound are... You get an extra mortal wound. Yeah, so they're, they're mortal wounds, plus you still have to take the armor save on top. Yeah. So makes them really good. Me with my uh, banner of the Emperor's Ascendant sitting in the backfield. The relic, yes. Just got assassinated, essentially. These, yeah, these death marks turned up and just sniped him. Dead standard. The banner has fallen. I mean, you can't really complain about fallen standards, Dave, because uh, otherwise, how would you have gotten married? Oh. <laughs> That's your worst one yet. You knew it was going down the pan at that point, right? I did, yeah. So I was actually in the lead at this In points point. terms. In, in points terms. However, my uh, boots on the ground or units still alive was yeah. thinning rapidly. If you get a lead, holding on to it when you're getting picked apart can be really, really tough. Yes. So it was uh, getting quite late. So my turn four was actually my last turn. I moved forward in turn, to, in turn four with the lieutenant who was also in the backfield, ran up to the death marks. The ironclad dreadnought also ran up to the death marks and proceeded to rip most of them apart, actually. Yeah. Did really well. The ironclad dreadnought only has four attacks. That's its downfall. However, those attacks are flat five damage. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter against the death mark so much, but no. uh, they are also AP minus four or five or something ridiculous as well. So you know they're not getting any armor save. Yep, yep. So ideally, I would have wanted him to go up against one of Dave's vehicles, but the death marks appeared near him. Yep. And, uh, kill what you can. Kill, yeah, kill what you can see. <laughs> What you can reach with the Templars. Yeah, so like I said, by this time I was very thin on the ground. The Command Barge and Nightbringer turned round and pretty much killed off my Land Raider. And from there, I pretty much uh, conceded the game. So Dave needed two more command points to uh, two more victory points to win. And we worked out that I had a superior objective. Four, I think it was, and he was already halfway to getting a defend objective four. Okay, so that's so three he, points right there. Yeah, he needed the three points to win. Um, so yeah, I, I conceded there. I only had a few units left. I think I had the lieutenant and the ironclad in the backfield, and one or two marines left. So yeah, it was it was it was a really fun game. So um, Dave, not taking anything away from him, although this is like his first game with the Necrons, he's been playing 40k for years. Oh god, so, yeah. So yeah, he, he's he's very good at what he does, and uh, yeah, he uh, outdid me tactically this game definitely. I mean, the final score was eight to seven. Yeah. So it's still a pretty close game. Yeah, yeah. So so I was I was winning what seven five uh, up until that last bit. Um, so we, we worked out he needed three victory points, and and he could get the three victory yep. points easily. So. Yeah, I mean, my takeaways from this, my God, that Nightbringer was nasty. A, he's a character with less than 10 wounds. So you can't target him. Can't target him. Yep. And B, he didn't have anything coming back at him because of that rule and because everything in close combat died before it got to hit back. Mm. Because he wrecks face. Do you think if you attacked with the Emperor's Champion first, it might have panned out differently? Because he is really good at smashing characters. I think he would have taken him down a few, like, and then got... and then I would have been more tempted to shoot something at him when I had the chance. Yeah, so the scouts might have, uh, I don't know, pinged had... a wound or two off. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, I, I saw him coming towards me with full wounds. I decided to ignore him. It's very much a kill him with everything you've got or ignore him. I decided yeah. to go down the ignore him route, which I was forced to first turn anyway because he was behind. Under, yeah. under the units 
Um, and by the time the second turn came around, he was still on full wounds, and I decided that I would ignore him and go after other units. He is a friggin' nightmare to deal with, as the as the name goes by. And yeah, everything he touched, he killed. Yep. So yeah, he is really good. Yeah, and uh, I suppose my other takeaway is that you need to pass armor saves to uh, keep characters on the table. Just look, just pass it onto Hellbrecht, mate, and you'll be fine. Yeah, just just a two. A two will do. Yeah. A two will do. But uh, no, no, once once we're across the board, died to immortals. At least him. he kills stuff. He does kill stuff, yeah. Um, so it's almost like playing Harlequins. Hit <laughs> stuff before they kill you. Yep. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I spoke to Dave after and asked him for a few takeaways, and he, like I said earlier, he realizes that necrons rely heavily on being very compact that synergy is uh, is key for them right yeah so keeping in the bubbles of the especially the cryptex so they give uh, i think it's a five up in bun bubble uh, and also fours for the reanimation plus one to reanimation isn't it yeah yeah which is really good yeah also the mefrit dynasty minus one at half range yeah that's powerful yeah when when he's in well most of it is 12 inches yeah at half range getting the extra minus one is massive yeah um there were he had a few weapons that were just minus four which ignored my armor saves yeah so yeah he was wiping marines off left right and center and using uh immortals to clog down enemies uh, yeah namely my five marines in the middle and hellbrecht Immortals, yes, are better at shooting, but their ability to clog down em- enemies is really good. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a good game though. So uh, yeah, really enjoyable. Like I said last week, I don't mind losing to someone that I enjoy exactly. playing. Exactly, that's against. what I was going to say. You guys had fun, and yeah, it was a, it was actually a close game, mm. uh, points wise. And yeah, as long as you have a fun game, then the outcome is not the most important thing. Yeah, got to got to see uh, our other friend Glenn as well because oh, yeah. we played actually around Glenn's house and. He asked for a shout out, so there we go. <laughs> Keep him happy. Yeah, well, right. we, we really need to monetize these royalties. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rolling in it. Yeah, so let's get on to talking about terrain because after your game versus um, Mike a few weeks ago, where you had that open section in the middle of the board to yes. trawl across. Yeah, it was a bit sparse there. Yeah, we wanted to, to sort of highlight the importance of terrain that we found playing eighth. It doesn't provide as much of a cover buff as it used to. It's still important for cover, but obviously, before where you would get in like a four up save off ruins. You know, it meant that AP, if you were in cover, was basically null and void. Yep. But here, with 8th, I think it really is about line of sight blocking terrain. Yes, definitely. Um, it's all about line of sight blocking. Especially as vehicles don't get any cover unless they're fully in it and half obscured or whatever. That like It's the line of sight blocking that you really need. So I think that for people who've already got terrain built that doesn't have line of sight blocking... I think you kind of have to maybe adapt that. I know that ITC rules, I think it's ITC rules, are the ground floor on buildings auto block line of sight. I'm pretty sure on that. I've seen them. I've seen it's been talked about online, but that's a okay. concept of like the ground floor is always too much rubble that you can't actually see through it, so it blocks line of sight. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, we've found playing several games now having those angles where you actually really are forced into moving in order to be able to see stuff. Yes, um, yeah. adds that extra tactical element to the game and. So it gives people that have got like a fast moving but vulnerable sometimes army, like your Harlequins, for example, yeah. you want to be able to move some of your vehicles behind terrain, etc., to be able to pounce on your opponent. You, you, want, to, not... you want to try and reduce the amount of shots yeah. coming in. Yes, definitely. So, I mean, it's really important. It also gives you a lot of opportunity to express yourself on the table aside from just doing an army. So, I mean, in our Warhammer Fest episode, we talked to Dan Harden. Yep, yep. And he had great tips on how to how he did his tower terrain. 
Yeah, so Dan Harden from White Dwarf created or scratch-built his own Tau terrain. Yeah, using the pipes and bits that we talked about last time, and it yeah. looks really cool. Everything from ammo boxes, sort of scatter terrain, I suppose you call them, yep. um, all the way to big Tau-looking buildings and silos for line-of-sight blocking. So yeah, and can, I think you can really, like you said, express yourself, go full Cypress Hill and um, <laughs> mix up those bits of terrain. Yeah, and I think that um, there are a lot of army, more, well, not a lot of, there's more army-specific stuff coming out from GW now, and I think that also you've kind of got ways you can do your own. So Orcs is the easy one because you can just put planks and bits of metal on Slap top a bit of, of scrap metal. Exactly, scrap yep. metal it up. Um, Tyranids, I've seen people use some pretty creative things to turn stuff into Tyranidly looking terrain. Just make it look organic and then you... Yeah, there's like seed pods and stuff like that you can use that are quite big and and, and are good for that. So I think like having a themed terrain buildings to to match your army that's likely to play on the table if you play at home a lot or if you're at a store, I suppose it's a bit more difficult or or like a club, it's a bit more difficult. But if you've got your own gaming table, you can theme it to be around your armies. Yeah, or like you said, there are a lot of army-specific terrain coming out from uh, Games Workshop yeah. now. I mean, you've got like the... The Eldar Ruins. Yeah, and you've got the Feculent Narmor, or whatever but, it's but, called. Yeah, for the Nurgle Demons, yeah, and exactly. the, new, get the new webway that's coming out for Harlequins. Exactly, yeah, so... Well, there, there's Eldar a lot of, in general. There's a lot of stuff coming out from GW. If you don't feel comfortable scratch building, I think that's the, the next point you've got on your... Yeah, I mean, you've got options of either... Buy in a companies, and you don't have to be just GW. There's loads of companies out there that make cool terrain. You can buy the the stuff either pre-built or in a kit, yep. and you build it yourself, which is what I've done with my gaming table because I've done a lot of research on building your own terrain. I still got a lot of tips and and you know hints from that, but the guys who build their own terrain out of like foam board and then texture it, like. I'm not very good at cutting accurate shapes like that to make it look really good. Honestly, I've tried before and it just looks <laughs> shit. So, I mean, taking you can take a leaf from their book and build your own terrain, or you can build the GW kit. So I think what I did was kind of use mostly GW kits and then scratch build a few bits to add in. Yes, yeah. I mean, you've got those like ruined cars and stuff. Yeah, I got some, got some toy cars that were the right size and smashed them up and made them look a bit knackered. But that was fun. Uh, yeah, they were really old ones from like the 40s, so they were significantly you weren't, more. They weren't your sons then? No, they were. <laughs> no, that wouldn't Daddy, go down. Daddy, where's there. my car gone? Uh, don't worry, son. <laughs> yeah, I get myself in a lot of trouble for that. No, but I was, I was actually had trouble damaging those cars because they were way too sturdily built. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just, I mean, you've probably you've got, got lead poisoning now as well. <laughs> <laughs> Explains a lot. So I think that you've got options like to, to mix and match kits like that or. Yep use polystyrene packing material to build buildings out of not the same way they did for the gt just to clarify i I didn't say yeah just the look on your face mate (laughs) it's an audio medium i've already said this (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's so many sources on youtube is great right yeah because that gives you loads of visual walk through how to build the terrain and i watch a lot of videos by the terrain tutor i was gonna say that it's one of them yeah terrain both is the like uh godfather He's just the man when it comes to building terrain. Like, he makes me feel like I could build it, even though I know I can't. Uh, exactly the way he's done it, because he's so good at making it look easy. But he takes you through every step and tells you all the materials, all the things you need. And he's got hundreds of videos on YouTube. Like terrain so... Duncan. Yes, he's Duncan Rhodes for terrain. Yeah. Well, almost. I mean, Duncan Rhodes. And uh, another guy called Luke's APS. He's on YouTube as well. He does really good um, info on how to do your own terrain. And I think that... And hobby tips in general, because yeah. I used him for the uh, DAS, DAS Oh, that's terrain. right, yeah. Yes. 
I mean, like watching those guys make their terrain and using their tips along with workshop stuff, you can kind of mix and match it. And I think that once you've built your own terrain, it it adds an extra narrative flavor to your games because you can either build it to look like it's a, a narrative piece or just setting up the table can tie into telling the story when you're playing a game. Yeah, well, setting up the table, building a diorama as well. Yeah, if you want to take those skills t- to you know the next level, because I'm thinking when we played the the second of our orc templars battle, we set it up deliberately to be the chapel in one corner where the orcs were holding it, the landing zone in the other corner, mm. and then kind of it set the story right from deployment. Well, this, this is what you were referring to when you said about narrative games, yeah, and just not so much taking the deployment or or if it's a specific objective marker. For example, I know in uh, it's its own Mortalis, you've got the different terrain pieces, and I think one of them has like door controls. And I think in 30k, they actually have controls for opening and closing doors. Okay, that's pretty in depth. That's but cool. Yeah, that's pretty in depth. But that's the sort of thing that you can use terrain for objectives to yeah. lean towards a narrative game. Like uh, I don't know, off the top of my head, you have to destroy a uh, Eldar webway. Yep. Uh, and to do so, you have to capture these three objectives uh, to turn off the power grid or yeah. however Eldar power their web. No, that'd be pretty, that's pretty cool. Like, or, yeah, or shut down defense systems or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good way of adding a, adding flavor to your games with the terrain. And I guess I also want to touch on like some tips for how to make your terrain modular. I see a lot of people now are using the gaming mats and they look awesome. Yep. They're really easy to play on. It gives your gaming surface a texture, but a lot of them have like building areas on them, um, I've noticed. And by having like your buildings on square bases, yes, like you exactly. put a model on a base, you can position it in different a areas of, of the table to, to match the groundwork that's, that's on the, I was that's on the say, printed map. A mat. lot of them seem to be a similar size buildings, so you can chop and change between the different areas on the map. So you're not on the map, on the mat. So you're not having the exact same game over and over again with the same ter- same terrain layout. Yeah, I think that's the key with having something that's modular. Is if you have a fixed buildings on your table, I mean, it, it would be it would look pretty cool. Like the Forge World, uh, the Warhammer World tables look amazing. Yes. Yeah. How often do you go there, though? I mean, if you are a local, I suppose if your local club has like fixed layouts on their table, you might get just bogged down into the same game over and over again. again so having yeah. something that's maneuverable where you can move the buildings around to change the setup make sure you don't end up playing the same game again. And if they're on bases like that, I think they're easier to store. Like, you can put them on shelves in a cupboard, and they won't get damaged. I mean, if you just end up chucking terrain into a box, like, it's going to get broken apart. Which sometimes lends to it. <laughs> well, just, yes. <laughs> That's it. That'd be a good narrative game, that would be. Build all your buildings at the start of the campaign to look really nice, and then just throw them in the box and get them out again every week. And as they get turned into rubble, the city's, uh, city's degrading. Yeah. There's, a, there's a narrative theme. Exterminatus, throw them out. Done. <laughs> Sorted. Not the price of that terrain, mate. <laughs> we'll that out. And, and the last thing I wanted to sort of touch on was like how to paint your terrain because I mean there are loads of different ways of doing it. I, I do like watching Duncan's videos. We all love Duncan's videos, but brush painting your terrain in the way he does it there looks awesome, but it's going to drive you balmy after that many buildings on a bit on the table. So well controlled. Yes, not bad, eh? Um, I think that you've got to go with a, a quick painting if you're looking to get your games going on. Straight buildings away. are always going to be tabletop standards. No one's going to spend 50 hours on an A building. Well, you say that. I think a good way would be to start by getting them really rough tabletop. So I think I'm thinking, and how I did it was 
paint or the colour out of a rattle can spray or, or a, an airbrush or like a spray brush, whatever the airbrush, a spray gun. It's the word I'm thinking of. And that gets you your colour on really quick and then do yep. washes and dry brushes to get the base colour done. Then your buildings are playable. Mm. And then if you want to add weathering, like rain streaks running down from the top of the building. Yeah, and what I want to add to my terrain when I when I get round to the next stage is to add like propaganda posters. Because yes. I think that would look really awesome. Yes. So I, I my thoughts would be to do it in a two-stage process or, or more, multiple-stage process to get something playable and then tart it up as as you go. And you know, I, I do also want to add. There's a couple of games that I played on the table that have had some really key moments, and I just want to add like one or two, like sprinkles of like mementos to the games to the terrain. Nice. As well, as long as it's not a dead black templar in the middle of the chapel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just this exploded templar with a grenade in his hand. Dave. Yeah. Well, the the solitaire getting guns down at the top. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not putting like a twenty quid model on my gaming table, Dave. It was. <laughs> More just from scraps. Mementos of the time I've killed Dave. There's a book. Yeah. <laughs> right, and uh, that, that ties in nicely with my uh, tips I wanted to give on how to make your own washes. Yeah, do you want to start off with that? Yeah, so as I mentioned, my preferred way of doing the terrain that I did on my cityscape was to spray the colour on and then wash and dry brush. And you spray on GW paints through an airbrush or, like I say, get a paint can that kind of colour matches and, and go at it from from there. But... The washes really add to the to the to the look because they darken everything down and they make it look gritty in 40k. Um, yeah, you see all the crevices and the and yeah, the and there's so well. much detail on those GW kits. Like I would not hand paint too many parts there. I made the mistake of thinking I'll hand paint some skulls on one of the buildings, and an hour and a half later, I don't want to paint skulls anymore. That's really good though. It does, yeah. But the Is that washes the part of your two-part process. <laughs> no. The washes are the, are the key, but like I mentioned, like putting null oil on your building, while it will look the best, one pot will probably do one building, and it's four pound fifty a pot or equivalent in currency wherever. Like that is not cheap to add to the cost of doing a building if you're doing ten buildings. Yeah, yeah. So what I did was looked up a lot of advice online and did a lot of trial and error, like a little uh, lab experiment on my on my painting table to, to get the best mix. And what I've used is Liquitex is the company and it's a matte medium. That's the name of the product or the type of product. I mean, Windsor and Newton make one. There's a Galleria make one. They're different companies, but the matte medium is basically paint without pigment in it. So it's used by artists to make slightly translucent paints, acrylic paints that don't have, uh, that still have the same body okay. as, as the paint. Is it a bit like Lamia Medium? Yeah, it's kind of like thicker Lamia Medium because it's like an acrylic paint. Okay. Um, whereas Lamia Medium is more like a wash. Mm. So you could, again, you could use Lamia Medium, but you're into the expensive then situation. Like again. Exactly. Yeah. So I use that and it's too thick, so I water it down. But if you use water and you want to store it, because I make it in bulk because it's cheaper. If you want to make it, we use water and store it, it will go a bit manky after a while. So I use deionized water or battery, car battery top-up water. You can buy from Halfords or your local car repair shop in whatever country you, you might get them in. And it's just for topping up the water in a battery, but it's purified so that it doesn't have anything that's going to go manky, any algae or anything like that. Can add to the effect sometimes. <laughs> if you want living terrain, then go for it, Dave. I didn't fancy right, here it. Is. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So I water the matte medium down like just over 50-50 with the water. Okay. Add a few drops of flow aid, which is a painting flow additive. Aid. Flow, not flow aid. Flow aid. Flow aid, yes, flow aid. And I use dish soap in water, like a drop of dish soap in a little shaker bottle of water is perfectly fine. 
just to break the surface tension and let the wash flow into all the recesses and not pull up. And then you colour the wash, this, this translucent wash mix, with inks. So I used my GW inks from like 15 years ago because I've got to use them for something. Nice. Um, but you can just buy inks off of, off of any online artist shop. India inks work best because they're a bit matter, but I, I spray matte mine afterwards anyway. And I just fill up dropper bottles with these and these washes and then take out as much as I need and slap it on the building. Slap it. Peachy style. Go. Get, get, peach. get a big, get a big brush and just slap it over your base paint and move it around a bit and then take away most of the pooling and let it dry and it looks great. Dry brush that. Happy days. Very nice. Very nice. And then to finish the, the terrain off, I just then varnish it with a spray can varnish. Just a cheap one because you don't need to worry about the quality to finish on a big terrain piece. Just a nice cheap spray matte varnish done and those who want to look up varnishes you can refer back to episode four that'll do you well for your voiceover work portfolio dave and your uh, sales tv adverts yep still no calls yet <laughs> yeah and that about wraps up my thoughts on how to make your own washes you save a packet the liquitex medium i think it's like 300 ml bottle is like six pounds and right. when because you're watering it down you can make like a liter of wash for about 10 pounds jeez well, or i suppose if you're making currency. a whole board then that's how much you need uh you need a lot just try and work out how much that is in known oil as well. Don't. Don't. <laughs> Probably cost more than an army. Yeah, not far off. Right. So. So I think that wraps us up for the episode. Yeah. So as mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash floorhammer podcast. Instagram at floorhammer underscore podcast. And obviously on our website for links, blogs and some in-game shots. That's floorhammerpodcast.com. You better get those pictures of the uh, Templars versus Necrons up then. I can now we've recorded this. Good man. Thanks, everyone. Yep, thanks for listening. Catch you next time.